Hello, everyone. This is Fire Chief Paul Dow with Albuquerque Fire Rescue. Now, this podcast is designed to bring you helpful training and best practices and some additional resources that you can access from anywhere. So thank you for joining us and enjoy today's episode. Rescue 20, Engine 20, respond to the five guys at 6550 Holly Avenue Northeast, cross street of San Pedro Drive. This is 20's firebox, 7201. You are responding to a 67-year-old female congestive heart failures, difficulty breathing. It is coded a 6 Delta 1. Rescue 20, engine 20. Five guys at 6550 Holly Avenue Northeast, 20's 7201, 6 Delta 1. Welcome, everybody. This is another episode of the AFR podcast, joined by Dr. Pruitt today. Morning, Doc. Hi, Andrew. Um, as you just heard on the opening dispatch, again, we're at the station sitting around and you get dispatched out to a six Delta. So from that information, again, as we talked about before, these are going to be pretty serious calls, but how, uh, broad should our options be at this point? When I see a chief complaint, I always try to keep my mind open to all the possibilities. And I think it's a safe place to start with those five causes of shortness of breath. So head, heart, lungs, blood, and musculoskeletal as I'm approaching that patient. And then systematically kind of rule those out as I find out more. Okay. So head, maybe there could have been a fall yesterday and there's been a slow bleed all night. Now the person's breathing differently. Um, Heart and lungs. Those seem like pretty obvious causes of shortness of breath. What about uh, the muscles and blood? What are some examples? Uh, For muscles and blood, with musculoskeletal specifically, um, you could think about um, like Guillain-Barre or some sort of diaphragmatic weakness, like maybe even a spinal cord lesion, cancer, um, something making the mechanics of breathing difficult. It could even be something as simple as rib fractures, um, if it hurts to breathe, making a patient short of breath. Okay. Um, and then uh, that's musculoskeletal and then blood. Um, the one I think of the most would probably be anemia. So slow GI bleed, um, heavy vaginal bleeding in a young female. Um, leukemia sometimes can cause it too or cancers in the blood. Okay, so we have you know the dispatch information. We have a general idea. Again, the, the alarm room has screened this caller already. You know, they're trained specifically to try to narrow it down for us, but um, so they do a pretty good job. You can't completely narrow in and say that's for sure the problem, though, but it gives you a good, good idea most of the time. Yeah, I think they do a fantastic job. It's really hard trying to guide a caller through medical questions if the caller is kind of limited in their, their medical knowledge. Dispatch does a great job. Yeah. All right, so we're going to walk through a couple scenarios here. So we're going to say that Engine 9, Rescue 9, respond to a nursing home for a 72-year-old female, not completely alert. She's having trouble breathing, six Delta one for engine nine, rescue nine. All right, so we're gonna approach this as from the rescue. So the engine has already arrived on scene first. They got to the nursing home before us. And uh, when we walk in, they're spitting out vital signs that they've already gotten. So the heart rate's 104, blood pressure 182 over 103. Um, this lady is setting 68%, breathing about 40 times a minute. And when you walk in, her eyes are closed. So at this point, what do we need to uh, get going immediately? And the nursing home staff is just hands you all the paperwork and they're like, I'm not sure. I just came on shift and uh, here's what's wrong with her. And so 
Um, you know, should we spend our time reading through that paperwork and figure out what's wrong with her or what, what do we need to do right away on a patient like this? At this point, what you just described is a pretty unstable patient. I think I would, um, ignore the paperwork for now and address the ABCs first. Okay. So it seems like her primary problem, at least from those vitals would be her hypoxia. So I'd probably jump to some sort of ventilation strategy. Okay. Yeah. And you know, you even, uh, just going back to checking responsiveness. So her eyes are closed when we walk in and, um, she's only responding to pain right now. So, um, and then we didn't get any lung sounds yet. So we can go ahead and ask, uh, somebody to get you some lung sounds. When you do, you hear rails, um, throughout the bases. Okay. Um, at this point, so, um, I think her mental status could be due to her hypoxia. So the first thing I would try to tackle would be um, getting her some supplemental oxygen. Sounds like since she does have a decreased level of consciousness, I'd start with probably bagging while I get someone set up, someone to help set up with CPAP okay. with the rails. All right, yeah, and sometimes with the, with the BVM, um, it's helpful if you have two people doing it. You can have one person just holding a really good seal and the other person bagging. And uh, again, you can do this while that getting that CPAP set up. But you know, what about uh, the fact that she's kind of altered mental status with CPAP? Does that concern you at all? Yeah. So actually, there's a couple really good points there. Um, can we start with bagging and then okay, we can talk yeah. about Let's CPAP? go back to bagging. Okay. There's um, bagging is one of the most important skills that we do. And if you have extra hands on scene, um, I would absolutely have two people doing it, getting a good mask seal. One of my favorite tricks when I'm teaching people to do it is pull the, do the thumbs down technique. So get at the patient's head if you can and put your thumbs down um, towards their toes. Okay. And use your fourth and your fifth fingers to bring the angle of the jaw into the mask rather than pushing the mask onto the face. It'll get you a really good seal. Um, and you can use your adjuncts if you need to. And then always remember good positioning of the airway. So I like to um, have the, it's called the ear to sternal notch, but where the meatus is in your ear, if you can line that up with the patient's sternum, that tends to open their airway and get maximal um, openness for bagging. Okay. And then what about just general positioning for somebody with fluid in their lungs? Um, so, so you can use like? gravity to help you there. So okay. if you still get the head in that nice sniffing position, but sit them up a little bit, um, even up to 90, if you can tolerate it or have the ability to do that while you're there on scene, trying to fix this problem, it will really help. Um, and then in terms, so while you're doing good bagging, lifting the jaw into the mask, two person technique, thumbs down, um, considering CPAP and someone with altered mental status. Still at this point with her, I think that her mental status is probably due to her hypoxia because her SATs are so low. So I would expect her mental status to improve as we get her some oxygen. Okay, um, so you're not opposed to CPAP. So if we initially, we start off with the BVM because that's going to be quicker to just get it in, in use. And then while somebody's you know getting the CPAP out, hooking up the straps, you don't have an issue with CPAP on a person with a little bit altered? No, um, the I think where that came from is um, CPAP and BiPAP initially became, um, like a lot of things, they start in the hospital and kind of then move into the field. And the hospital policies had always been that you couldn't use that in an altered patient because of the nursing to patient ratio. Sometimes nurses will have like five, six patients and they can't do that one-on-one -on -one with this very sick patient. And the concern is that if they have this 
air blowing into their face, if the patient was to vomit or not be able to tolerate their secretion, there's a chance that that fluid would get aspirated. But since we are in the field and we have even maybe with you got the engine and the rescue there, you've got a five caretaker to one patient ratio. It's you can protect that airway if you need to. You can suction. You can give them Zofran. You're watching vigilantly to where you can protect that patient if they start to aspirate or okay. look like they're going to vomit. All right. So now we were really aggressive with our uh, breathing intervention. We got a BVM, and then we ended up transferring that over to CPAP. So what are the other steps we're going to need to do to figure out exactly what's going on with this patient? Um, so you addressed your life threat pretty quickly, that hypoxia, um, and um, got the bagging going and the CPAP going. Next, I would think, okay, well, what tipped her over the edge today? And if you see her getting better, then you can kind of pull yourself back as the lead paramedic on scene and start to ask yourself, why did this happen or what else do I need to do? Uh, I think capnography might be a really good differentiator here. Uh, you can look at your waveform, you can look at your number. Um, that might help you distinguish, is this a lung problem, is this a acidemic problem, give you a little bit more information. As well as a 12-lead EKG, that might help as well. Okay. Yeah, and some other of the things that we just take for granted, um, you know, a BGL, maybe get a temp, somebody like this could be... Uh, have pneumonia say it could be what you're hearing in the lungs it could be uh, from that pneumonia rather than um, a backup of the heart so um, get a couple more things to try to narrow it in yeah absolutely uh, blood glucose um, every time on an altered patient um, I feel like we're really good at doing that but it's easy to forget too so blood glucose is always important because that's easy to fix and then um, differentiating what that fluid might be, a temperature is going to be super helpful here, especially in your nursing home patients, because we all know they frequently get bad infections and mm. can become septic. So pneumonia is a fantastic consideration here, okay. too. What are some signs and symptoms? If we're like right now, maybe we're thinking this could be like pneumonia or this could be CHF. What other signs and symptoms are we going to look for if we're if to go down one route versus the other versus the other um this is probably where you've got your initial treatments going and i would try to gather a little bit more history it doesn't sound like the patient is actually going to be able to tell you much about what was happening okay. before this episode but you might be able to send somebody to find the patient's nurse or someone who knows her a little bit better or this is where you might flip through the chart to see if she's got a history of heart failure okay so now that we feel like we've we've uh, treated what we need to immediately. Now we can take a minute, look through, try to look at the meds, look at the history. Um, and then somebody else can be doing the secondary exam while you're doing this. What, what might they see that could give you some other clues? On the secondary exam, so if you're thinking about heart failure, um, you can look for JVD, which is um, engorgement of the veins in the neck. And typically you can see that if you just turn the patient's head um, to the side about 45 degrees you can look and see if the uh, jugular vein is sticking out uh, You might hear rails in the lungs bilaterally um, or fine crackles sometimes um, peripheral edema a lot of times p the pitting edema in the bilateral legs It's usually bilateral and you can kind of push your finger in and see if there's a dent that stays in the skin Okay All right, so the nurse uh, that didn't just get on shift happened to show up and she said that the patient has a history of CHF. Um, and so now 
we're going down that route of it. Um, so once we know that this patient has a history, what's going to be ultimately the treatment that we're wanting to do again, let me re, um, iterate what the vital signs were. So this is a 70 year old female. She's uh, responsive to pain. Her heart rate's 104, BP 182 over 103. She was satin 68, uh, but now with that we're bagging her. She's up in the 90s uh, after the bagging, then the CPAP, and then we're kind of controlling her respirations about, um, they've come down to about um, 20 now that she's getting that positive pressure. Okay. okay, so she's looking a little more comfortable, but she's still pretty hypertensive. Um, at this point, um, I would use CPAP for her with her rails and her labored breathing. Um, and you can also consider nitro. Um, what, uh, the way that heart failure works is basically the whole circulatory system is a closed loop. And if your pump is really weak, um, fluid is going to back up until it can be pumped out, right? So everything's going to go backwards. And it sounds like with this patient, a lot of her extra fluid, for whatever reason, wherever she has it, it might be her diet, she's eating too much salt, or it might be another heart attack, or it might be um, she's not taking her medications. Whatever, whatever reason it is that all of a sudden her heart can't handle the fluid that's in the system, it's backing up into her lungs. And um, nitro is just going to help dilate the blood vessels to absorb more of the fluid and get that out of the lungs and into the vasculature. Okay. And I'm not sure if we specifically mentioned it, um, but for sure we're going to want to have a 12 lead done um, prior to this. And then let's see. So at what pressure, I know like in the guidelines, it's saying that you want to ha- want to make sure the pressure is good before you give the nitro. Um, is that just like anything over a hundred, or what pressures do you think that nitro is going to help out the most with? Yeah, I'd say especially you know you always want to have caution in your elderly patients because they can be a little bit more sensitive to medications. Um, but I'd say about a hundred and ten systolic. If it's less than that, that's where I get a little bit cautious. Um, with her respiratory distress, my strategy with this patient would be to start with CPAP, give her that positive pressure, push that fluid into the spaces where it needs to be and out of the spaces where it doesn't need to be, reassess your blood pressure. If your blood pressure is still high, then that's a patient where you, and she's still pretty labored, I would give her nitro. But if, if the BiPAP or the CPAP does the job, then you can just stop there. Nitro okay. is just an extra adjunct. So would there be a circumstance where the CPAP, you know, just by correcting the hypoxia, is that going to lower the blood pressure maybe? It could. And it's also going to increase some of the intrathoracic pressure. And so that by itself might drop the blood pressure. So it's important to anticipate a little bit of a blood pressure drop when you're giving positive pressure. And it might be enough to where you wouldn't want to give the nitro. Okay. So we've been planning this podcast for a couple of weeks now and um, just off the air, we've been talking about giving nitro. So I was, I was all about it. You know, I was like, where's my f- first patient that I can use this on? And uh, we got called out. This is going to be our second example in this one. Uh, we had engine nine, rescue nine, respond to a 90 year old male shortness of breath. So upon arrival, this guy's speaking 68 word sentences. He sat in 92 percent on two liters he's got pitting edema the wife said his uh genitals have been swollen for the the past day and his pressure was 109 systolic heart rate's 80 breathing about 20 times a minute his lungs were clear though um but to me this uh he had a he had a chf 
history. So this seemed like the patient that you're going to want to try, try the nitro on again, based on our, uh, our guidelines, but it was, it was a little bit unclear to me because he didn't have the rails and it wasn't an elevated pressure, but it seemed like it was just like a case of kind of like a mild COPD. Mild. Um, yeah. Um, that's an excellent or, question. Sorry, CHF. CHF. <laughs> yeah. That's an excellent question. Cause he sounds like by the guidelines, I think nitro would be fine and you wouldn't be wrong there. Um, I tend to give nitro more for trouble breathing to help dilate the pulmonary blood vessels. Um, just to help alleviate the hypoxia or the work of breathing. Um, he sounds like, the vitals that you gave me, sounds like he's a fairly stable patient, and he probably didn't need a ton of like immediate intervention. At some point, he's going to need to get that fluid actually off, and that's what's going to happen at the hospital. They'll give him drugs to help him pee it out or shift it different ways. His heart failure actually sounds like it's a little more right-sided. The right side of the heart, if you remember, um, the superior vena cava and inferior vena cava bring blood back from the body. And for whatever reason, it sounds like his right side of his heart is the part that's congested because the blood is backing up into the body. So it's his legs, his pelvis, probably his abdomen that are swollen. And uh, the nitro, if you were to give nitro, I don't think it would be wrong, but it would move fluid probably into more of his legs and his pelvis where the swelling is and not distribute so much from the lungs. Okay. Yeah. What's, uh, you know, I, I think we've all seen the pitting edema, but is that a swollen scrotum? Is that common finding actually, for Actually, CHF? yes. Um, it's actually a fairly common finding in liver failure patients too. It just has to do with, um, if you think about the way water flows, just dependent areas with low resistance. And so that's why um, fluid tends to go into the feet and ankles first because gravity just kind of pulls it there and there's not a lot of pressure to bring it back. Same thing with the lungs. It's pretty low pressure system. Fluid likes to collect there. And then in males, the scrotum is an easy place to collect too because there's a lot of low resistance um, capacity for expansion there. Okay, so this guy, he was having a little bit of trouble breathing, you know, only speaking like six to eight words at a time, satting 92, but we ended up putting him on uh, six liters and that brought him up to like 98%. We asked him if he'd ever had uh, CPAP before and he said he had, but he didn't want it today. Okay. So he said that the six liters uh, nasal cannula actually helped him. So, you know, that's kind of how we took it. You know, we ended up not giving nitro because he didn't want the CPAP. So he just thought like, oh, okay, well, he's not that bad if he's refusing this um, CPAP that we thought would have made him feel better. So Yeah, it sounds like you gave excellent care there. If, if the um, nasal cannula made him feel better, um, I think that's fine. And his vitals were fairly stable too. So, okay. But I appreciate you were trying to treat his work of breathing, which is a very important point. Um, even sometimes, especially in kids, um, sometimes their oxygen saturation will be fine, but they can be breathing incredibly fast and labored. And it's okay to give, to treat the work of breathing rather than the, just the number that you see on the pulse oximeter. Okay. Um, and I just had a general question about this pitting edema. So I'm, you know, I know what pitting edema is. Like you mentioned, you push in down on the legs and it kind of just stays there for a while, but there's like a scale, you know, three plus, four plus. I'm not as familiar with that. And is that useful or how do you think about the trying um, to grade those, that pitting edema? Gosh, that's a really good question. I don't know that 
there's probably a scientific out there answer out there somewhere. The way I kind of judge it is if you were to push your thumb into the patient's like pretibial area or to the shin, if it just leaves a it's kind of a subjective thing, but if you le it leaves a small indent, it's probably plus one. And the deeper your thumb is able to go, and the longer that dent stays there, would be like plus three. So it's really, it's kind of a subjective thing based on how shallow the pit is okay. and how long it stays. It's kind of like the opposite of Capri fill, I guess, is the way I would think about it. All right. Yeah. So I, you know, I'm usually feel pretty comfortable just documenting pitting edema, but the, uh, the numbers I haven't felt as comfortable with, but yeah, I, you'll see on the on the slideshow if you can stick your finger in there and it feels like a marshmallow and the imprint stays there for a while. That's plus three. Okay. All right. So patient like this, let's see. There could be a circumstance where you have a similar presentation, um, but then the person's also complaining of chest pain, and when you go to check their pressure it's it's like i don't know 72 over 46. oh my goodness <laughs> that's a sick patient where where are we at now with uh okay um treatment? so um i would do my best on this patient to get a history um if they have a history of heart failure and they're able to tell you how bad their heart failure is that'll be really helpful here um and then so you said they're hypotensive are they what other like vitals do you have um so yeah i think whatever the pressure i just said oh, okay. uh, maybe say 72 so 70. over 46 okay. um they're satting in the 80s and they were complaining of chest pain okay as well um so chest pain in my mind anytime i hear chest pain i think 12 uh 12 lead and aspirin okay <laughs> so that's easy right off the bat make sure it's not a STEMI. um it, say it's not a STEMI and you just see something like a left bundle branch block with um, like left ventricular hypertrophy, which would paint the picture of a heart failure type patient, right? Okay. Um, I would ask them what their pressures normally run because if I'm suspecting this is a heart failure patient or they tell me that, um, I'd say what's your normal blood pressure. I just took care of a patient last week in the hospital who had really bad end-stage heart failure and in trying to treat his heart failure and get him ready for a transplant or an LVAD, they were actually trying to keep his blood pressure very low. And so his target blood pressure was 80 systolic and that's where he needed to be. So this actually wasn't bad for him. Okay. So, so it's important so to kind of put that pressure in the context of your patient. All right. For this most recent patient we're talking about, this is going to be a new onset. Normally their pressure is up in, you know, 125 or so. And this is sounding more like uh, cardiogenic shock. Cardiogenic shock. Okay. Um, so this is a patient where you want to look at their distal perfusion. Is it, are they cold? Are they warm? Do I think this is sepsis? Do I think this is coming from their heart? If I suspect it is coming from their heart, um, then the best thing for them is going to be to give them a presser. Okay. And we would start with um, epinephrine. Okay. So we got the epimenic bolus. Again, if this is a you know, cardiogenic shock, you got fluid in the lungs and they're not perfusing well, their pressure's low. 
Um, we do have the Epi Mini Bolus. That's again, you know, there's a couple options to do it. You can do a drip, but I always just pick the one that I plan on doing. So I plan on doing the Epi Mini Bolus, which in that case, you're going to take the uh, Cardiac Epi 1 to 10,000. You're going to squirt out 9 cc's, and then you're going to draw up the saline in there. And that turns your solution into 1 to 100,000 mm-hmm. um, of Epi. And what you end up giving is uh, 1 cc per minute you know, titrate to, um, the pressure, but that one CC is going to contain 0.01 milligrams, um, of epinephrine in it. So that's a, that's a way to draw it up again. You squirt out the nine, um, CCs of the epi, then you draw up saline in there and it changes your solution to one to a hundred thousand. Then you give one CC per minute, um, as like a mini bolus to keep the pressure up. Yeah, I think that's the easiest way to do it. And these, again, it all comes down to, for whatever reason, the heart isn't able to meet the body's demands. So you want to increase that blood pressure so you can get blood to the to the other organs. Okay, and then with these heart failure patients, what's kind of the ultimate treatment? What if it gets so bad and their ejection fraction is so low? What's going to be the fix for these patients? So um, right now there's kind of two options. There's a transplant would be the ultimate option. You can't really fix, I guess technically it'd be like a broken heart. There's no, there's no surgery that's going to fix it other than a transplant. And the in the meantime, it's kind of interesting over like the last 10 to 20 years as our population is aging with the baby boomers, there's more and more heart failure as there's more and more heart disease. And um, as a consequence of people surviving their heart attacks, they survive heart attacks, but now they have scarred hearts that turn into heart failure because once a heart is scarred, scarred, it's not going to pump as effectively as it used to. And so that leads to heart failure. Um, and so our numbers of heart failure patients are just increasing by the thousands every year. But our transplants that are available are pretty steady over the last 20 years at basically 2,000 transplants a year. And so we're stuck in the medical community with trying to find a fix for heart failure aside from transplants. And where a lot of that has gone is into LVADs. Okay. So you'll see a lot of end-stage heart failure patients with LVADs, and those are going to be becoming more, more common as the population ages. Okay. And we're not going to get into a huge conversation about LVADs, but the one thing I remember is, you know, there's not going to be a pulse in those patients, right? Because it's just a... Right. A a continuous... Continuous flow of blood. Flow of blood. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think we'll end it there before we get too into the weeds, but uh, thanks for watching and we'll talk to you on the next episode. Okay.